Hey everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to episode one of Horror Comics Podcast. I thought it would be appropriate to cover the first horror comic I ever owned. Uh, well, this is actually, it's a magazine, but it is creepy. Number 26 from April of 1968. Uh, before I get started, um, I don't, this is the first co horror comic slash magazine I owned. Um, I do have a vague memory of being in an antique store or like a secondhand shop or something um, and pulling this off the rack. And the cover of it is, uh, I guess it's a painting. Um, it kind of looks like a photo that was made to look like a painting, but I don't know that they did that back then. But it's uh, Lon Chaney's face, or at least the exact same makeup from the lost film uh, London After Midnight, directed by Todd Browning, starring Lon Chaney. And it was a movie that was lost and kind of put back together here and there um, by different companies. I think Turner, what is it, TM, TCM, Turner Classic Movies, or whatever it is. Uh, tried to kind of use stills and pieces of the script to kind of make a version of it to kind of like what you what was in it, but it wasn't the movie. Uh, I know that Todd Browning ended up remaking it um, a couple years later, but without Lon Chaney. I think Bella Lugosi was actually in it, and it had—I think it was called "Walk with a Walk with the Vampire" or "Walk with a Vampire," something along those lines. Um, but anyway, I love horror. I know I talked about it a little bit more in the last episode, and I wasn't expecting a bunch of people to just randomly know about this podcast and hear that episode and start filling up my inbox with suggestions. But it's more so there to kind of keep that option open of like, if you have suggestions, feel free. If you have uh, comments, any kind of feedback whatever you want to hear. If you have books you want me to go find, I'm only going to cover physical comics uh, for now because I've got so many that I want to get to that I actually own. Um, but if you have a suggestion of something, please let me know. And if I don't own it, I will go out and find it and get a physical copy and I will cover it uh, as soon as I can. So uh, that being said, so speaking of feedback, uh, horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to hear, what I should do better, differently. I'll take everything into consideration. Uh, or if you just want to mail and if you just want to chat about uh, horror comics or the horror genre of anything in general, uh, I'm happy to talk about it. I love horror comics, movies, whatever. I've been through all sorts of phases of horror movies and whatnot through the... Uh, my, my main love is the universal horror classics, the creatures and whatnot. But I've been through phases of like... You know, the, the Halloween and those the slasher movies and like there's like the gory, really gory stuff. And then I kind of shy away from that now, but I'm not completely opposed to it. Um, but anyway, again, I'm covering Creepy Number 26, and this is by Warren Publishing. And just a little bit about them. Uh, Warren Publishing is named after James Warren, the man who uh, created this. And they focus on horror, fantasy uh, science fiction. They actually started with um, the famous monsters of Filmland, and uh, they covered movie monsters and sci-fi stuff. And then they kind of moved into they moved into what we have as creepy and eerie, uh, Vampirella, Help, uh, Blazing Combat. Uh, they did uh, the Spirit for a little while. There was a 1984, and among others, I'm not going to go through the full list. They eventually did shut down in 1983. Now, some of these titles have been licensed out to different to different publishers to reprint. And some of them have tried to reprise, 
creepy Dark Horse did, but with new writers. I haven't read any of that. Um, I, I, I'm hesitant to. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but I, I would just, I don't know. I, I'm hesitant. So if anybody has any suggestions on that, you know, if I should check it out, let me know. But the same thing kind of thing happened with EC Comics. They uh, they got uh, licensed out to different people to reprint and try to restart some of them. And, uh, you know, some of them didn't really work out so well, but hey, some of them did. And it kept the spirit of EC alive and new readers got to find EC, like myself, relatively new. But the creepy is cool. Well, Warren Publishing, really, they it was cool because, they you know, this was the time when the comics code was kind of really hitting some of these publishers hard with the horror content. They seemed to really be going after the horror aspect. I think mainly EC Comics was kind of the one that really did them in, but um, they were able to get around that by being magazine form and saying, hey, you know, we're selling on a magazine rack, not a comics rack. We're aiming towards an older audience, but they knew what they were doing. They were smart about it, and uh, it's kind of cool that they were able to do it that way, and they did it that way for a while, and they were successful at it. A lot of these horror comics, too, one thing that's cool is they were actually pretty progressive um, when it came to uh, social issues, equality, uh, and being kind of being against war and all that um, stuff that wasn't really popular uh, in the mainstream back then. And, um, you know, you, you got to hand it to them for, for sticking it out and doing what they can to stay afloat. Uh, some of these publishers, there were a lot that just came and went once the you know, in, during the bubble, uh, if you will. But uh, Creepy was the one, man, that stood the text, test of time. So the stories in here, now, of course, there's like the mail sections and whatnot, and those are fun to read. Because uh, it, it, it's amazing how they would publish these letters from readers that would be like, hey, what was the deal with issue 24? That sucked. Like, what were the stories? The art on the cover was great, but everything else sucked. Like, give me a good book. And it was just kind of funny because they would publish it. It was a little uh, gallows humor, maybe. But this is published by James Warren, the editor by uh, Bill. I don't know if it's Parent or Parente. Uh, we'll say Parente. He's got an E at the end. Maybe I'm overthinking it. The cover is by Basil Gokos. Uh, artists in this issue are Tony Williamson, Ernie Colon, Eugene Colon, Jerry uh, Grandinetti, Tom Sutton. Steve Ditko, uh, writers in this issue, Archie Goodwin, and again, Bill Parente. Uh, contents, we've got our loathsome lore, which is the mail section. We've got Stranger in Town, Second Chance. We've got more from the Creepy Fan Club, uh, Completely Cured, Untimely Meeting, Backfire, and Voodoo Doll. Now, I'm not going to read these necessarily word for word, but I will definitely uh, just be bouncing through the stories and... Uh, I hope you'll enjoy kind of reliving or hearing this for the first time with me. Stranger in Town The car's headlights bored into the billowing fog and absorbed by the drifting, ever-thickening mists, ceased to trace out the narrow back road ahead. Strands of the smoky vapor snaked into the car and hung damply about John Randolph's anxious eyes. So here we see John Randolph, very nervous. He's sweating. Uh, he's, he can't really see ahead of him. You've got all this kind of growth. There's a lot of kind of cool hidden, well, what I'm taking as hidden, and it, it might be like a Rorschach, but like there's hidden images to me like in the fog and the, the plants look like they're kind of reaching out. They almost kind of look like some like witches and stuff like that. And then in the fog in the background, it kind of looks like there's a witch on like a broom. I, you know, that's not part of the story, but it's just cool to check this art out. So, uh, you know, he's really regretting. He doesn't know where the hell he is. He's regretting getting off the main road. He can barely see in front of the car. 
and he makes the very smart decision to get out of the car and walk to try to find a house. So a dozen steps and the car was lost. He could barely make out the ground he stood on, rising up on either side, vaguely seen as dark masses beyond the luminous fog, monstrous plants surrounded him. So he says this should be Pride's Crossing, according to the map, but there's no houses here. A mysterious figure, dressed in all black. Pride's Crossing, the village is gone, gone long ago. There's nothing here now, save me, John says. What? Who? Who's there? Say, mister, am I ever glad to see you? The mysterious stranger says, come, we'll walk a ways. You will hear what became of Pride's Crossing. Come. So here we meet Frida and Eliza Mapes. She has just given birth to a baby boy who they name Wilfred, but the doctor seems very, very nervous. So Eliza, who is the husband, says, doctor, what, what's wrong? What's the matter? The doctor shows him and he says, Eliza says, no, that was awful. No. <laughs> but he screams out, no, is that better? No, I don't know. He's, he's terrified. He's like, what's wrong with them, doctor? He says, I don't know, Eliza. I just don't know. So we move ahead in time. Uh, Frida and Eliza did their best for the boy, but occasionally he escaped their protective custody. This is where we see the, uh, the children in town, not really taking uh, kindly to this um, beastly looking child, this uh, deformed child, uh, telling him to you know, get out of town, you freak, you monster, why don't you wear a bag on your head? We learn more about Eliza. Uh, he was a botanist, and before his sudden and mysterious expulsion from the faculty of a prominent Eastern university, he had made certain discoveries concerning sentient vegetable life. Now isolated from the scientific world, the lone experimenter continued searching, searching out the most primeval, primeval, I don't, I've never known the right way to say that, primeval searching out the most primeval secrets of his bizarre plants, and you see him surrounded by this lush uh, growth, and there's a machine going thup, 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 in the back, and they made a little note to let you know that sentient means aware, perceptive, down to the bottom corner, a little editor's note there. As the years turned, Wilfred mapes from a sibling freak into a teenage monstrosity. His father toiled unceasingly in the watery, vine-choked, hydroponic gardens of his own invention, and when you have a woman passing, no trespassing sign. But you can clearly see him back there. It's just kind of weird. He's just on the other side of a fence. And all these crazy, uh, gigantic flowers and vines and this, this, this garden. Uh, and you have the machine sound, too. Again, kind of thing. So then you have Wilfred rounding a corner, surprising Miss Melinda. And he's, he's offering her flowers from his father's garden. And she kind of freaks. And then she kind of pulls herself together and says, oh, well, you gave me a scare. Oh, well, thank you, Wilfred. But then you have a thought bubble and she's like, ugh, he's become even more grotesque. If that's possible, better humor him. So she takes the flowers home, puts them in a vase. And she says, she's thinking to herself, you know, I mustn't encourage the monster, but the flowers are so beautiful. They're so different. Well, the next morning, Wilfred could not have known that the blossoms he sought to impress Melinda were from that corner of the hydroponic garden where his father was conducting experiments in thinking plants. Maybe I'll add some echoes there. But the next morning, sob. <laughs> That's, you say, sob. No, I'm a, I, you know, I don't know who it is that's finding him. It's, uh, it's three men. So we'll say maybe her father, uncles. Maybe one of these is her husband. I don't know. They look a little older. 
be your husband. Who knows back then? You don't know, but they're freaking out. Like, what happened? She's been choked and mangled by this plant. Only one man hereabouts keeps things like that. Old man mapes. So they're, you know, what are we waiting for? Let's get him. They go after him. They burn their house down. But you see Wilfred running from the scene of the fire. They killed mother and father, but I'll escape. I must. I'll live to make them pay for this. Well, they chase Wilfred through the swamp that they lived on, and they actually shoot and kill Wilfred, uh, sending him, you know, f- down into the down into the depths of the swamp, and they are celebrating his death, basically. And what can only be described as similar to Swamp Thing, almost identically, the will for life. The lust for revenge became indomitable force within Wilfred Mapes. His blood mingled with things alive in that swamp from the dawn of time. So then you have him sinking down into the water, getting you know surrounded by plants. He's like, I won't die. I, I can't let go. I will live. I will. I will. He's rising out of the water. Days, weeks passed, and the secret sorcery of the raw, primitive, organic life in the swamp water became a part of him. Does this sound familiar? Ruined tissue and broken bone, transformed into vegetable matter, blood to sap, skin to tough plant fibers, and Wilford Mapes stirred, stretched, and lived. Meanwhile, at the pub, we've got everybody at this particular moment talking about, ah, it's a good thing old man Mapes and his family are gone. Yep, they're all real happy that they're gone, and... They realize, well, actually, it'd be even better if that stinking garden of theirs burned down too. So off they go. They get their torches, their shovels, their axes, and looks like Wilford has beat them there because Wilford, who actually looks really awesome once you get into, because he shows up to the garden. The garden still is flourishing. There, the pumps that were in there are still going. And Wilford says, now the garden and I will be one. Uh, he's just this crazy He's more shadowy now in a lot of these panels and actually looks really cool, but you can see the eyes and just, it's really cool looking. So you have extraordinary how the hatred of the villagers extended to that last vestige of the mapes, the garden. They get there and they realize it's still running, not for long, and you have the thup 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 of the machine. They get thup thup No, I could do better. I'll do better. One of these days. Anyway, they were like, they're getting ready to burn it down. And they're like, you'd think it was alive. See how it shrinks away from the flame. And one guy chops one of them. He actually hears a moan come from the from the vine. Well, then you turn around and a vine is wrapping itself around one of the men's throats. It takes him out. And you pull back and you look at Wilford, this giant mass of land, basically is what it looks like. But it's just plant matter becoming this large landscape, ripping up out of the ground and coming up on top of him. They're like, good Lord, look. And... The vines come down, and this is my favorite page of this story, and it's a big splash page, and Wilfred Mapes, uh, swamp creature, is just taking over the entire page. He's just got uh, a lot of just tentacles at this point, but he's wrapping up all the men. kind of looks like he's throwing them into the, the pumps in there, but I, it's hard to tell either way. And so it came to be that Wilfred Mapes was the stranger in town no more. He had become the town. Another great panel of him actually literally like a giant shadow taking over the entire town. But, you know, you still see the plant matter and all that stuff. Just a great panel. And the houses are being ripped up. And it's just 
being terraformed to nothing except garden. We cut back to John Randolph and this stranger. Off the main roads, as it was, the tiny population of Pride's Crossing was not missed. Occasionally a stranger, through some misadventure, would pass through, and John says, you've got to be kidding. Even if there were only a few villagers, they must have had relatives looking for them. Wait a minute, what's that sound? You see, thup, 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 thup. The stranger says, the pumps still run, the garden still grows. John, what did happen to the strangers who happened along, like me? the stranger and because the plant is also a meat eater you realize it's changing into wilford john says you're changing you must be and you still have the, 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 the wilfred mapes i acquired the ability to hypnotize my victim N no stay back the, the, the. and again another great panel of wilfred just turning into this shadowy plant monstrosity holding up john randolph opening his mouth there's a big tongue coming out he says, to provide a bit of protein for myself. And you have John screaming no, and a great, great letters here. And then arg the end. And that's it. That's the end of John Randolph. And uh, I would not suggest taking a trip to Pride's Crossing anytime soon. But um, the art in this issue is by Reed Crandall, and script is by Bill Parente. If I didn't say that already, I don't remember. But that's who did it. And it's a fantastic looking issue. I, I absolutely love the art. And there's something, I think the black and white, the absence of um, color really lends itself to these horror comics. And kind of, even if it's a silly comic, there's something unsettling about it when it's black and white. I don't know. So they, they had to be really creative with the shading and all that stuff. And I just think it's fantastic. It's great. These stories are all silly, but this one was a lot of fun to me. I think the visuals were really cool, and um, I really liked it a lot. So we're going to move on to Second Chance, which the art is by Steve Ditko, wonderful Steve Ditko, and the script is by Archie Goodwin. And uh, if these names sound familiar to you, it's there's a reason for that. I will definitely get more into the creators' backgrounds and bios, uh, I think, at some point. Maybe not super in-depth, but just touch on a little bit of what, uh, you know, what they've done in the past. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, if you're here listening to this, you may know a, a lot about these guys. But getting into the story, we've got a couple of police officers. Uh, we only get one name, as far as I can tell from here, and there that is Downey, who is walking with a uh, new recruit on his first on his first assignment. And they're walking around a, a, a graveyard uh, cemetery here, uh, gated in, and uh, they hear a scream. So, of course, you know, they realize it's coming from uh, from the cemetery. So they they head inside real quick and uh, they find a little shovel, a spade, they call it. And there's blood on it. Uh, they follow the tracks of blood to a man who looks like he has just lost his mind. And he's like laughing hysterically. His hair is bright, bright white. And they're like, you know, Downey uh, says he recognizes this guy. He has a record of grave robbing. Now we cut to the title page. Second chance. Really big up top. Not quite chiller font. But something close. Uh, a little bit of the narration here. For a time after he died, Edward Nugent, uh, Ted's, I guess, less successful brother after uh, we get into the story here, drifted into a limbo without dimension, without thought, like a dreamless slumber. Then, sensation wakened in his floating form, and he found himself drawn into a half-world of horror, a shifting, changing nightmare that reached out and engulfed him, an amoeba universe wrapping around him, pulling him to its core, now, Edward Nugent, I'll just call him Ed, he is falling in a pretty crazy, I mean, Ditko is great 
at these types of just swirling. I mean, it's just this outer dimensional kind of thing. It's like spider webs over here and then all these like weird globular things. And then there's a twisting little uh, pillar of human flesh and heads. And there's a big bundle of human heads and a weird uh, creature-esque thing with eyes and claw. It, it's, it's just great. It's fantastic imagery. But then there's also like a window with a bunch of demons, like shadowy looking demons with white eyes reaching through. Ed's falling and he thinks to himself, you know, I knew it was going to be bad, but not like this. You know, who could imagine it? Who could prepare for this? But, you know, I've got to keep my senses. Yeah, good luck. Deeper and deeper, Edward Nugent plunged into the dark domain, pleading and begging within himself for it to end. Until, to his sudden regret, it did. Now, Ed comes pouring out of an eyeball uh, into some waiting, grasping hands of some creatures who uh, drag him off uh, and take him to, well, what ends up being... Uh, Beelzebub, uh, Prince of Darkness, Lucifer, Satan, whatever you want to call him. And he tells him to you know, get down flat before the mighty one, before the Prince of Darkness, before the great Beelzebub. And he, he does so. He's trying to get, <laughs> it's not, he's not like bowing before him. He's just kind of, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. He's not quite laying on his stomach, but maybe he's getting, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, again, the art though is great for hell. Um, it's just a mixture, like I said, it's like spider webs, but also it, like it could be underwater, but there's also like smoke and sizzling puddles and stuff. It's, it's great. So Beelzebub, you know, he says to Ed, I've waited some time for this. And Ed's like, I, I didn't think it would go this far. Don't you remember? We, we made an agreement. We made a pact. And he's like, we made a bargain. And I've worn this sign of yours as proof. Surely you haven't forgotten. And he sh opens it up and it's a Texas Longhorns jersey he's wearing underneath. Um, it's actually just a, like a longhorn or like bull looking, I, I guess it's a brand. I, I don't know. It's just a black, it's, I don't think it's like a necklace or pen, a pendant. It looks like it's like branded into him. Who knows? Maybe you just drew it with a Sharpie. Beelzebub says, I forget nothing. This is only a chance to reconsider, to call off the bargain. So basically he's saying, you know, you can call it off and, and go ahead and face your, face your eternity now, or for whatever reason, I guess he was trying to, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess he was giving him a second chance. Maybe that was the bargain. He says, give up and remain here when I can still hold you to your pact. I want what's due me, Beelzebub. First look and see what waits when the agreement's done. And then a pit opens up next to him. You just have swirling, grasping, reaching, crazy creatures, uh, very shadowy. But again, they're like kind of, they're not necessarily without shape, but they're not like a distinct shape. They just kind of seem to be stretching and like going about. It's very eerie. So you have more narration. Behind him came a great rumble. Nugent turned to find himself teetering on the brink of a huge precipice, and that's what I just described. He begins to back away. He says, you're trying to scare me out of the deal. The deal was, if I died, you'd give me life again. I could take up where I left off. He's like, I, you know, the rotten, ugh, the rotten life I've led, you got me either way. But with the pact, I'm going to get a lot of good years in before you do. What do you think I made it for? Beelzebub says, well... Ed, you know, the pit will be waiting. It's like, okay, okay, you had your say. Now I want to go back. You know, I want to go right back right now. Like we agreed, Beelzebub says, to take up life where you left off. So be it. And he does kind of a poof, kind of a Dr. Strange-esque thing, which makes sense. Steve Ditko. Uh, and Ed gets sent right back through the windowy, outer dimensional, space-like, but also hellacious portal. 
that Steve Ditko has drawn uh, wonderfully. I know I keep saying that, but it, it's just a great looking book. And when you turn to this story and you see Dit, you see Ditko's art. It's a, it's just a, it's almost it's jarring in a way. It's so much like smoother uh, than the other one. Uh, not that the other one wasn't great, but it's just a completely different style. It's just Ditko's style, and again in black and white, I love it. So once again, Edward Nugent found himself floating, whirling faster and faster, being heaved up by the terrible dark world that had swallowed him. So you just see his eye in darkness. He says, it worked. I can feel it. I'm warm, alive. But where, where, where did I return to? We go outside the graveyard and more narration. Nugent turned in the pitch blackness. There was little room to move and even less room to breathe. He figured out where he was. <laughs> and you have a thought bubble coming from a grave, uh, coming out of the ground. It's a, you know, to where I left off. This grave was my last place on earth. He's tricked me. I'll die in a few minutes in here. Well, lucky for Ed, someone comes digging along trying to dig up his grave. And he's thinking, you know, hurry, hurry. I can still cheat him. He has his pit. Uh, a little bit more and... Or he says, I can still cheat him and his pit. Just a little bit more and... Sure enough, here they come. They... <laughs> I don't know why they're digging up his grave, but... Uh, it's whatever. It's right time, right place. Or maybe... He says, I win. I've cheated death. Satan himself. I win. I win. And these guys are, you know, pulling the lid off. Then we cut to the epilogue. It says, in the softest light, madness is harsh. By the flashlight's beam, it is all but contagious. Both policemen shiver as the breeze catches the insane giggling and flings it to the far corners of the cemetery. So one of the policemen says, you know, we better, we better keep looking around. This one usually works with a partner. And the other one says, but, you know, can we just leave him here? I mean... He's like, well, why not? He won't go anywhere. He's hiding inside himself already. So here are the tracks, and we can follow him back to where he came from. Footstep after footstep is traced back until... He says, Downey, is that the partner? Not a mark on him, like he died of fright. Downey, in the grave! Oh, Lord! He looked down. They used the spade on it. Beat it with the spade. That's where the blood came from. But why would two, ex two experienced grave robbers be so frightened of a corpse to do that? I don't know, kid but maybe we should be frightened too. When was the last time you saw an embalmed corpse bleed? And Uncle Creepy closed out the story. A silence falls over the two policemen, and the only sound in the cemetery is the wind, which has become colder, and perhaps faint above the wind, so distant it might be from another world. A cry, like the sound of a soul in torment. Do you like that? That voice I had from Uncle Creepy? Is that good? I kind of just made that up on the fly. I don't know, I might listen back and take it out. Or just do it different next time, I don't know. But we go to the next page, and it's actually just a page of the Creepy Fan Club. And I'm, what I'm guessing this was, was maybe, maybe this was like fan-submitted stories. It's just written stories. There's no, there's no art in the stories, it's just like short stories. One of them is called Demons, the other one is called The Beginning of the End. Um, and there's, in the very center, there's a pretty crude drawing of uncle creepy um pretty amateur looking drawing of uncle creepy um so i'm guessing that's what that was um as i go back through the archives of creepy i might start seeing more explanation of what that is or i might just google it but you know there is a, a little a little tag here it's like hey gang want to join the creepy fan club and get your numbered membership card big full color club pin and full color portrait of uncle creepy just send one dollar to creepy fan club 22 east 42nd street new york new york 10017 um i might try that and just see who replies it won't be creepy we'll see who it is all right so our next story is completely cured with art by tony williamson or it might be williamson 
I don't know. I can't remember what I said before. I'm recording this on recording this on a different day than I did at the very beginning of the podcast. A little inside baseball there. But it is written by Bill Parente again. And I meant to look that up and see if I was saying it <sighs> right. I forgot. Oh, well. Uncle Creepy does have, and I'm not going to do it in that voice again. It hurts my throat to do that for some reason. But Uncle Creepy does have a little uh, intro here. And he's laying on top of the completely cured lettering with a stethoscope in his ears and against his chest. And he says, here's an oozing choosing to keep you musing, merry maniacs. Uh, so pop a chill pill into your mouth while I inject a little pen poison into your pulmonaries. Chances are after numbing you with this needle, needle full of nausea, you should be completely, completely cured. cured. Our story starts a very, very dark, cloudy night. We have a train uh, blasting down a train track. Andrew listened to the steady rumble of the train as it slid along the steel skin rails like a huge reptilian creature on wheels. It was chilly in the compartment. His hands felt cold, unmoist. He could have just said dry, cold and dry. Unmoist is just, maybe they're just setting the tone for how unsettling this story is going to be by using a very unsettling word like unmoist. Ugh. An eternity might have passed since the boarded train. God damn it. An eternity might have passed since he boarded the train. He couldn't be certain of his weary senses. Not much longer, and they'd be in Fallsburg. Then he could sleep to stop the maddening race of his mind. We just see some panels of him on the train. Got his head against the window, looking out the window. Voices mingled, trying to match themselves into sense as Andrew's eyes opened to their sound. For an instant, Andrew thought he was home. But the feeling lost itself in a cold memory forgotten somewhere in the back of his mind. That he realizes he's now at Grimsdale, opposed to Fallsburg, and he's wondering why they stopped there. He's like, well, i got to find out what's going on and phone the folks. So he looks, he makes his way to a hotel, goes into the concierge and says, excuse me, my train got delayed and I was wondering. And then you see a very ghoulish, skeletal, creepy looking fellow pull the newspaper down from his face, revealing a very creepy face. Says, I watched it pulling in before. We don't get many trains in Grimsdale. A phone, you say. <gasps> Gasp, that face. Yes, yes, to call Fallsburg. Fallsburg, nice town. Go across the lobby, down that corridor. Be careful, mister, it's dark. Thanks, I'll be fine. He makes his way down the corridor, finds a phone, still questioning the uh, look of that clerk. And uh, as he picks up the phone, you see behind him, peering in the window of the phone booth, more ghoulish creatures, but not quite as skeletal, just more exaggerated-looking features, but still kind of human. Um, maybe a little bit Neanderthalish. We'll see. Uh, was he going mad? Andrew screamed to himself. What was this nowhere place, filled with the things he couldn't believe to be real? Or were they? He'd be safe back on the train. He's being chased by these ghouls, and they're like, Why the hurry, young man? Your train isn't leaving just yet, is it? He says, What in heavens? He was going insane. For a moment, nothing but the silence filled his ears, becoming then the flapping of stiff wings in the mist-draped metamorphosis. And you do see a very swirly, cloud-like, or more like a fog kind of starting to surround him, but there's the shadow of a giant bat sort of fading into a full black, hovering over him. And you start seeing him run off into uh, the void, I guess, when you see two bats. I'm assuming they're bats. Maybe they're vampires. We don't know. Uh, watching him run away. A gasp of breath filled Andrew's mouth with the cool fog. Slowly, he sank into the soft garbage on legs that no longer could help him. 
And he's thinking, the time, the train could leave any minute. So as his nostrils flinching at the stench around him, Andrew ignited a sputtering match. He screams, realizing he's standing on top of a bunch of skulls and just skeletons in general. And it kind of seems like one of the hands of the skeletons reaches up for him. His brain whirled in bewildered hysteria until finally both eyes burst their sanity at the end of the graveyard passageway. He yells, corpses, my God. Well, as he's running, it comes across this ceremony. It's these hooded people carrying a, a box, presumably a casket. And uh, in the other hand, you know, there's one of them holding a very large candlestick. It's not a torch. It's specifically a candle, but it's just huge, which is very odd. Something drew Andrew toward the macabre procession, his veins throbbing with the rush of blood that filled his pounding heart. He says, that coffin, I must see who it is. He can't help it. He's drawn to it, y'all. Now the hammering smashed in rhythm against Andrew's chest. One of the hooded figures, we knew you'd come back, Andrew. This place, have I been here? Did you imagine you could leave your doom behind you? You left life because you were afraid of it, only to learn that death is the far greater agony. Andrew says, it can't be, not here, no. He gazes upon a tombstone. Andrew Turner, born 1939, died 1964. Wouldn't you know it, Drew? It's, 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 uh, things aren't looking up for you, buddy. You can't do this. I don't belong here. Stop! Formless faces begin to blur into unconscious patterns as Andrew tried to hold back the lid of the coffin. I've got to get to Fallsburg. Don't you understand? Fallsburg! Six gray forms huddled from the chilling drizzle beneath their umbrellas. They watched in silence as the crude wooden box was lowered onto the depot. And we do see that it is at Fallsburg, and it is quite the rainy night. And I'm assuming this is his family coming to, uh, coming to collect the, the body. If Mr. Larens hadn't insisted that they claim the body, the family would have seen to it that it remained where it was forever. For them, Andrew had become a forgotten memory without meaning. And you just see them loading the casket into the hirsch. You were the surviving relatives, I presume. Yes, from Andrew's descriptions, I'd know you anywhere. I'll need your signature to release the body now that he's home. Here, I'll sign. And he's got papers that say Grimsdale Sanitarium. He was insane, as it turns out. Ooh, spooky. Andrew always knew he'd be coming back to Fallsburg. Someday. And then there's a very odd panel at the bottom of this of Uncle Creepy wearing like a pirate hat. And I don't know if he's supposed to be talking like a hillbilly, but he says, duh, how's that for a loony tune, Mad Hatters? Seems Andrew's screaming dreaming finally got him a plot in the spot he wanted to rot in. Guess the folks were crazy about him after all. I don't know what that means. The The... BUs over and over really throw me off. Anyway, the end. And our next story. Untimely meeting. Now, we start with a prologue. Um, we see a man sneaking up behind a, a guard, a man with a cowboy hat and a shotgun, man with a knife sneaking up behind him. Comes around, uh, puts his arm around him, stabs him in the chest, and then we see him, the man that was stabbed, tangled up in a barbed wire fence and the uh, the stabber escaping underneath the barbed wire fence crossing a ravine now our narration is prologue this was Granger's only chance to escape from Chattusa, or sorry, Chantusa oh boy we're in the south now sugar 
Oh, Lordy. He knew if the colonel could caught him, he could be killed himself. That's how the Cajuns talk around here. Uh, nah, I'm actually in North Louisiana. They don't talk like that here. Way down south, though, that's how a lot of the guys talk. He'll just up here now. This young mess right here now. That's a lot of what goes on. Uh, some of it's not so much exaggerated in the media. Mostly up here, we sound like Texans. So, hoo-wee! Maybe that's how I should talk. I don't know where Chantusa is, to be honest with you, though. It's probably Texas. Anyway, being serious, this was Granger's only chance to escape. Serious. Uh, this was Granger's only chance to escape from Chantusa. He knew if the colonel caught him, he'd be killed. Because if the gators don't get you, the colonel will. Okay, I'm done, I swear to God. He could almost hear the hiss of sweat streaming down his face and his mouth throbbing from the numbing thirst within his throat. And this is where he takes and stabs him. But he'd rather die of thirst out there in the swamps than rot forever in the stink of Chantusa. That's what they should have named this story, Stink of Chantusa. It's got a better, a better ring to it than Untimely Meeting. Well, actually, that makes sense, too. All right, at least in the swamps he might have a chance, unless the crocodiles got him first. I beat him to that joke in the future. Now we get Uncle Creepy wearing a ball and chain and a, your typical prison outfit with a little stripy hat. And he goes on to say, I see by the talk of my shock clock that it's slime time again, terror tots. Will I get my muck unstuck? You unwind with this little ticking ick thing and watch this happen at this... Watch what happens at this untimely meeting. Now Granger is flying through the swamp, running through the water... Had he really escaped the muck sucking? Had he really escaped the mud sucking at his legs? A tired curse gurgled through his parched lips. They'd found the guard already. Granger could hear the whine of the hounds behind him. The colonel liked to keep them starved near madness. Granger, damn dogs, they've got my scent. Granger passes out on the shore with his legs in the water and is now he's no longer wearing a shirt. Um, I don't know when that happened, but I don't mind it. Ironically, now he was trapped for good in a prison with no escape. Now we're at daytime, morning time, rather, and it wouldn't be pleasant running into the colonel again. Not now. We've got, we've got the colonel and a couple of other men, and they're chasing, chasing him down with their dogs, and you know, we're just kind of laughing about how he's a dead man walking. We get Granger coming, too. He's on the highway. The heat's really getting to him, and... Uh, this is where he kind of starts to go a little bit crazy. You feel like he's going crazy because, you know, they make mention of, uh, you know, where, what was it, the prison, um, the stockade or the swamp? Well, at least back in the prison, he knew what to expect. Back to the colonel and his men and the hounds, and they found they find Granger's shirt hanging off of a tree in front of a swamp. And this is kind of where they're like, okay, let's call off the search because this guy's as good as dead. Crocodiles are going to get him. He's not surviving in here. And if the sun doesn't kill him, this will. So we have Granger coming up on a car on this highway. He's like, I must be dreaming. First a highway, and now this. Hey, you there. And we have a man in a, in a car, um, very early style automobile, um, very, very uh, uh, appropriately dressed for that time period. Uh, driver is out, and he's just kind of tinkering around with the car. And he says to Granger, oh dear, you've found my road. I didn't think anyone would be out here. And Granger says, what, all, what is all this? I don't recall a highway through these swamps. He, the man says, well, it's a bit difficult to explain. You'd probably never believe me anyway, but actually this isn't a, really a highway. So he says, and I'm supposed to just, you know, and I suppose I'm just seeing things. You know, you're not really here. Is that it? The man says, you mean an illusion? Oh, now you're not far from the general idea. 
And then he says, well, stopping the car, you see, well, it interrupted the pattern. All of it, the road, the car, even I that came existent. And Granger says, listen, mister, don't make, I just, you don't make any sense. Enough of your gibberish. How about a lift to wherever it is, to wherever, wherever it is, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How about a lift to wherever, it, wherever it is you're going? And the man says, oh my, I couldn't do that. I'm not allowed to. Besides, it wouldn't work with both of us in the car. So Granger smashes the man's head against the car, says, then I guess you're staying. And he's, Granger drives off in the car, leaving the man behind, says, crazy little ninny, all that nonsense about going back. What do you think I was, dumb or something? Anybody can see that this highway is real. Life is a highway, and I do want to ride it all night long. Then we go back to the narration. Then... To where did this turnpike lead? Granger baffled his brain, trying to adjust to his astonishment. His imagination simply couldn't explain the strange sequence of events that unwound before his stunned senses. We see the background turn black with a bunch of white streaks. He says, what's happening out there? Everything's blurry, moving so fast. And then we see the car flying through all of these circles and just crazy, uh, kind of like before with Steve Ditko, but not quite as detailed. This is more just geometric shapes, uh, circles mostly kind of intertwining with each other. Still gives the same kind of effect, less hellacious, though. And we see, as his hands began to wither, like the movement of flashing, movement, oh, Jesus. As his hands began to wither, like the moments flashing by him, suddenly Granger understood what was vanishing behind him. Time, swallowed like the faded highway far behind him. He could see no answer in the void ahead, only that in a few seconds he would be dead, from old age. My hands... Good Lord, I'm, I'm traveling into the future. I've got to stop. Got to. Then we see Granger outside of the car. Get back somehow. What good is this now? This highway, it, it's got to work both ways. Of course, if I go back the way I came, he could still regain those years. He'd lost and escaped the colonel forever. So now he's young again, and back to where he was, and he says, how will they find me if I don't exist? <laughs> In a few moments, he'd be free. Could he really believe what was happening? He comes up, he's coming up on another car and he says, why, that looks like a car. Impossible. There couldn't be another, my God, I've been going too fast. I came back before my past could become my future. That's me in that car. Me. Ah, and then they crash. You go back to the, all the, you get an explosion in the, all the circles and the intertwining whatnot. Poor Granger. Ironic how things always had a way of catching up with him. Then we see Uncle Creepy, dressed like an angel with a halo, playing a harpist chord. Says, how's that for a double dose of dumbfounding delirium? <laughs> Dread brood. Oh, Uncle Creepy. Next time, maybe those guys will uncross their eyes when they're driving. The life they save could have been theirs. I mean, his. Oh, what's the difference? Oh, boy. Okay, we're going to go off to okay, a great, um, great page here of uh, just ads for it's actually just different movies um for like the three stooges and the blob and it came from outer space it's just cool i love seeing these old ads and just kind of have spending some time on them because it's it's it, these are just again it's just movies but the ones where they're selling all the weird stuff that you know is bs is just hilarious to me so our next story is backfire which seems like it's uh, gonna be a western and i say seems like it is a western and uh, it's weird Western, Uncle Creepy. But it is written by Archie Goodwin with art by Gray Morrow. So we start with some narration from Uncle Creepy. It's weird Western time, boys and ghouls. 
and the Shriek Showdown is coming up as we join John Henry Terrell, a killer whose career as a gunfighter is about to backfire. A lash of cold rain struck Terrell's face, jogging him out of his sleep-like stupor. Two days straight, writing had lulled him into town. Never heard of one being around here. Looks deserted. Shut up tight. Maybe word got in from Ellsworth I was headed this way. Ellsworth had not been hospitable to John Henry Terrell, not after the gunfight. Few towns ever were. Blasted do-gooders, running me out. Someday I'll light in the saloon. At least I can get a drink, maybe a meal. He swung down from his exhausted mount and entered the saloon on saddle-wearied legs, anxious for the warmth and comfort promised by the glow of light. Hey, anybody around? You got a customer? Want to get a drink? The bar's closed, Mr. Terrell. What the? Your reputation's preceded you, Mr. Terrell. No need to demonstrate your prowess. You ought to watch how you come up on people, old man. What's happening in back? Poker game? That's serving as the jury room. We're awaiting the arrival one more juror before beginning. Gonna have a trial, eh? That why the bar's closed? Exactly. In the absence of a proper courtroom, we must make do. All we need is the final juror. Yeah, these barroom trials are always fast. I'll wait for my drink. A fine-looking weapon, Mr. Terrell. A Merwin. A Holbert. 4440, I believe. Now, I will add that this guy kind of just came out of nowhere that's uh, come up on Mr. Terrell when he was in the empty bar. So that's always learning from history within just this episode. Generally uh, a bad sign. That's right, old man. Hit. (laughs) Big and hitting hard. (laughs) Sorry. Big and hard hitting. And those notches, Mr. Mr. Terrell. 11 of them. You killed 11 men? Think they'd be on there if I hadn't? Only ain't, it ain't got 11. It's 12. Got one in Ellsworth I ain't had time to add. A real plow boy. Must have been his first time anywhere bigger than a crossroads. Needed to be taught some big town manners real bad. And I was just the man to teach him. Only being an ignorant plow boy, he was pretty slow to learn. You see them kick this guy. We're in a flashback now. You see him kick this guy into the mud. Got mad. Made like he was thinking of drawing on me. And nobody does that to John Henry Terrell. You got the scratch to pull that, farmer? Or do you just carry it round to scare off crows? He surprised me and got the gumption. But that was all he had. I could have gone for a beer in the time it took him to get that piss out. <laughs> Am I right, fellas? Could have gone for a beer. <laughs> for a moment it was quiet except for the monotonous driving of the rain outside. Then the old man spoke. Interesting, Mr. Terrell. Not unlike the death of my own son. It was a fair fight. He drew first and outside. What's that noise? We see two men walking in through the uh, swinging doors, saloon doors. I think, Mr. Terrell, the last member of the jury is here as they walk. Well, they're both walking. We go outside. It's a very stormy night, very rainy night. Rainy night, we see... uh, uh, four horses bringing in a carriage. Terrell pushed past the old man and peered into the un, unrevealing swarm step. Sorry, unrevealing swarms, storm swept darkness beyond. A sudden crash of thunder and a streak of lightning illuminated the street in front of the saloon. A funeral coach. Slow dragging footsteps sounded on timbers of the porch. So that's what's happening. Basically, they're having this conversation. He's taking him outside, and. 
they're realizing that this final uh, juror is here. Um, it, it, the way that the panels go, it seems more like they're walking inside somewhere, but I think that's just because of the illustration. But anyway, we have slow dragging footsteps sounded on timbers of the porch. I want to know what's going on, old man. Who's this juror? What's this trial all about? The batwing doors creaked, then fanned empty air back and forth as the twelfth juror entered. No! I killed him in Aylesworth. It can't be. Get that thing out of here, old man. For I shoot you. Get it out. That thing is my son. The son you killed. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Unless, Mr. Terrell, my boy's death stopped my weak heart as surely as your bullet stopped him. Now, if you're done, we'll begin. The trial. Your trial. Mr. Terrell, by a jury of your peers, the twelve men you killed... Blank sockets that were once eyes glared accusingly at Terrell as one by one, on unsteady, decaying legs, the jury filed in to assemble and render its verdict. You can. This isn't fair. You can. Fair? Was it fair when you goaded them into unequal fights? You were right about these trials being fast, Mr. Terrell. They've already reached a decision. The roar of twelve pistols blended into one gigantic thunderclap of destruction. Guilty! Bullets tore into Terrell with sledgehammer force, and white-hot pain leaped through every part of his body as darkness and oblivion reached out and drew him in, and we do see him being fired upon multiple times. We cut over to outside in the rain, Terrell on his horse. A lash of cold rain struck Terrell's face, Jogging him out of a sleep-like stupor, two days straight, riding had lulled him into a dream. I'm alive. The town was deserted. Shut up tight, Terrell felt vaguely uneasy. Light in the saloon. Least I can get a drink, maybe a meal. He swung down from his exhausted mount and entered the saloon on saddle-weary legs. Anxious for warmth and comfort, it was only a dream. Just a dream. What I need is a drink. The bar's closed, Mr. Terrell. You, just like the dream, Mr. Terrell? It was real, just as it's gonna be real for these next 11 times. Yeah, anyway, he screams and yells because he's getting blasted by all of his victims and you see all the bullet holes ripping through his torso. We cut over to Uncle Creepy and he says, hey, hey, by the time Terrell's through, he's really going to be all shot for you little friends. I could have sworn he was going to say fiends. For you little friends who want to know just how much he'll suffer, read this story ten more times. For you who have suffered enough already, on to the next oozing oration. I'm just going to keep doing different voices for Uncle Creepy. The uh, the other one I think might be my favorite. The, uh, By the time the chill's through, he's going to be all shot. I don't know. It's kind of like an Alan Rickman kind of thing, but maybe... Uh, I don't know. Something takes me back to Reanimator. Maybe I'm thinking of old school horror trailers. Anyway, I might just do something different for Uncle Creepy every time. Maybe I'll just use my own voice, which I understand is not that creepy. But um, I actually really enjoyed that story. Uh, it reminds me of a story I wrote in. Well, I went to a very, very religious school, very religious on the Christian side in that it was like, if you know what United Pentecostal uh, denomination is, 
the school was run by that denomination. And I don't really, I mean, my, we grew up Christian. Um, I think that was at the time, the only option my parents wanted us to have like a Christian based education, which I know, I know, I know now I know. Um, but this was like hyper extreme, like I say hyper extreme. It's not like Mennonites necessarily, but it's just like a couple steps down. You know, I say Mennonites, uh, old school, old school Mormons, which I realize that modern day Mormons aren't really that extreme anymore. Like they're not the, uh, you know, multiple wives. That's not the mainstream Mormon. But like you think if you're 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 old school Mormons, you think you're your Mennonites and like stuff. this is kind of close to that. But they're the ones that were speaking in tongues and like all oh, this crazy stuff. Um, and I wrote a story for an English class that um, was a similar idea of like a repeating narrative that keep keeps happening to the same character and they can't get out of the loop. Um, and surprisingly enough, I got like an A plus on the paper. Uh, and it, he even the principal was the teacher of that uh, English class. And he even told me like, oh, well, you know, I didn't like the violence, but uh, I thought the uh, story was pretty creative. And I was like, oh, thank you. And this kind of reminded me of that. Uh, same kind of deal. Um, although I think mine probably made less sense. Um, maybe, probably so. Uh, anyway, you just reminded me of that. So I, I dig that one a lot. I, I think the art was really cool. And what I, one thing I can always say is in these in these black and white magazines, the rainy scenes, like the stormy scenes, are always so cool to me because it's like they are faced with the challenge of being like, okay, it needs to look super rainy, but it's black and white, so it needs to be clear. So they really have to like know what they're doing with their shading and with their harsh lines and with their soft lines and everything like that. Like it's just cool to look at and really examine the art styles of these creators and what they had to deal with and like how they had to make it work. And it's just beautiful. The art is absolutely incredible, and uh, I love it so much. And uh, this is a cool Western tale. It's uh. You know, I haven't. I know I've been just kind of going back and forth, and I haven't really dug into each one. And I don't know. Maybe I should, on the back end before publishing this, kind of dig into each tale and say what I like about it. But we'll see what happens. Um, but this was just kind of a change of pace because, again, it is a western, and that's kind of a cool, fun uh, aspect of horror that you don't really think about. There aren't a lot of like western horror stories, um, even if it's. I mean, I sure you can go to well. I'm sorry. I just went back in time 15 years. I was going to say, sure, you can go to the video store and rent some B horror Western movie. Actually, you can't do that anymore, but I'm sure on Netflix or something or whatever, you can find, uh, you can find some, uh, strange, probably Adam Sandler starring, uh, horror Western. All right. Maybe it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's horror. Uh, anyway, we're going to move on to the next story. Sorry if you can hear me turning the pages. If that's something that bugs you, you're going to have to either get used to it or stop listening because, again, like I said before, I'm only reading physical copies of books. So uh, that's just just the way it is. Uh, the next story is Voodoo Doll with art by Jerry Grandinetti, script by Archie Goodwin. So we get another Archie Goodwin treat. So we start with Uncle Creepy. Any of you loathsome? OK, actually, I'm going to go back to the um, Alan Rickman Moore style. Any of you loathsome Lotharios been one? <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> Any of you loathsome Lotharios been wondering what sort of gory gift you can spring on your ghoul friend? Browse through this pulse pounder and see if she'd like a voodoo doll. We see a man walking up to a building wearing a duster and a uh, fedora kind of hat. He's thinking, there's still time. I could forget the whole thing. The neighborhood was run down and seedy. One of the city's worst. Hardly the place for someone as respectable as Howard Lowman. Yet here he was, approaching a decaying tenement with slow, hesitant steps. We see him descending the steps with the moon behind him. He's thinking, no, it's too late. This is the only way, horrible as it is. The air of corruption hung heavily over the squalid dwelling, filtering to Lowman, further depressing him as he descended from the sunlit... Oh, okay, it's the sun, not the moon. Yeah, in the illustration, it looks like the moon. As he descended from the sunlit sidewalk into the shadows of the building's basement. You're late. I thought you changed your mind. Decided to do without my services. Now we see this voodoo man. He has uh, kind of a Doctor Strange-esque goatee mustache kind of thing going on. But he does have like a turban with a thing coming down the middle, like a strap coming down the middle. So I don't know what that means, but he has a bunch of masks hanging on the wall behind him. It's a very eerie atmosphere, and I actually really like it a lot. So Loman's response is, no, is, is it ready? As I promised last visit when you brought the hair and photograph. My God, it's, it's crude, but it looks just like my wife. But can it really work? I mean, when hears all those stories, but for the money you're charging. So? You've come to me, you seek voodoo. Yet now you have doubts. Very well, Mr. Lohman, a demonstration. He pierces a pin through the hand of a doll that looks like a woman with black hair. Now, Mr. Lohman, go home. Go home to your wife. See yourself. <laughs> See for yourself how effective my powers are. See how well your precious money is spent. I'm sorry. You must understand how important this is to me. I've got to be certain. The voodoo man watches as Mr. Loman walks back up the stairs out to the street, saying out loud, for some reason, he seems so sure, so positive. If only it does work, I'll never have to worry again. Eden won't be able to leave me. Not ever. For a man of 50 to keep the love of a woman half his age is difficult. For Howard Loman, it had proved impossible. But if his affection could not hold Enid then he was prepared to try anything else that would. We see Howard Lohman entering his house, taking off his coat. Enid, darling, I'm home, she replies. It's high time, Buster. You make a lot of noise when I talk about leaving, but when I need you... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't even listen to myself do that. <laughs> um, but when I need you, where are you? Something went wrong. Wrong! A shelf broke in the kitchen. Right above where I was working. Good thing I was able to get myself to the doctor. She holds up her hand. It's bandaged. I nearly lost my right hand. I feel like I sound like Dave Chappelle when he's impersonating white people. Um, I don't mind that. So I'm just going to roll with that for Enid's voice. A lot you care, Howard. If you really loved me. Maybe it's like a weird George Bush thing. I don't know. We'll see. You tell me. If you really loved me, you'd want to see me happy. You'd give me the divorce. Not stand in my way. I need time to think, darling. Time to think, he thinks to himself. The voodoo works. 
With that doll, I'll control Enid's every action, her very life. After work the next day, Loman rushed to the slum sanctuary of the occult. All doubts and hesitations of the previous visit banished. Go in, he bust down the doors. The doll! It works! Her hand! Just as you showed me! Now you are convinced. Now you realize the pa full power of voodoo. Yes, yes, it's fantastic. Here, take it. All of it. You earned it. And he's handed him a huge stack of cash. And uh, the voodoo man is holding the voodoo doll of Enid. Be warned, Mr. Loman. The fate of the voodoo effigy is life and death to those whose image it mirrors. These dolls can kill. We see uh, the voodoo man watching uh, Mr. Loman walking down the street. There's a black cat crossing the path there, too. It's oh, omen, maybe. And he's thinking to himself, he's right. Poor Enid. But I'll take good care of the doll. Nothing will happen to her or it unless she tries to leave me. We cut back to the voodoo man's lair with the masks behind him. And he says, he's gone. You can come out now. We hear, he fell for it. He really believes that doll. All the voodoo mumbo jumbo I got out of these old books set him up to the first couple of visits, but seeing you with that bandage hand was, bandaged hand was the clincher. Gullible old Howie didn't even think to check if it was real. We obviously see Enid now uh, come out behind the curtain. She's got her bandaged hand. His dough's real enough, and there's a lot more of it than if I'd just run my regular fake magic con game. That's what I told you when I'd followed him here the first time. I delivered what I promised. I feel like I've changed her voice for her, but who fucking cares, really? Did you fix up what I'd asked for? Sure, but this ain't gonna do you any more good than the phony doll I sold him. Don't be too sh <clears throat> Sorry, switching characters. Don't be too sure, voodoo man. Your, quote-unquote, magic may work better than you think. Time passed, and Howard grew impatient to try his newly acquired power over Enid, until he could wait no longer. You see him digging around in his drawers. Got to be here. Hit it in the bottom of the drawer. No, I did. Enid comes in the doorway. Lose something, Howard, dear? One of your toys? A toy like this? And holds up the Enid voodoo doll. Enid, how did you know about that? You fool. Did you think there was anything you... D <laughs> Sorry. You fool. Do you think there's anything you do I don't find out about? I know all about this doll and what it's for. And do you know what this one's for? And she holds up a... I feel like I'm now just sounding like the voodoo man. Uh, she holds up a doll of Mr. Loman. Howie Loman. Howie. I love the name. We'll call him Howie. Oh, no, no, no. Enid, be careful. Please don't squeeze it so tightly. You've got to understand. I didn't want to hurt you. You only wanted to hold me. Trap me forever. Well, I want to hurt you, Howard. See how I'm holding this pin? So it can be pushed right into the dolls. And she shoves it right through his heart as he screams and she says, Heart! Gullible old Howard believed in this voodoo so much it killed you. Just like I figured it would. I'm free of you without losing a cent of your money, Howard. And everyone's going to think it was a heart attack. We cut back to... Humming to herself, Enid scooped up both the dolls and walked out of the apartment to the incinerator room. There, with these out of the way, no one can prove a thing. Not a... Suddenly, pain pierced her right hand like a jabbing needle as the bandage snagged onto the chute while the heavy lid slammed shut. She screams, Oh! 
Why didn't I take that fucking bandage off? Slam. Door slam on her hand. A cold chill swept through Enid, obliterating the throbbing pain in her hand. It's like the injured hand on the voodoo doll has come true. That's silly. Impossible. It's f fake. It, it has to be. Besides, that doll's down in the furnace by now. Burning. Gotta get out of this little room. Getting so hot. Why is it so hot? We see her sweating. She starts screaming. Through the hallways, we see all of her neighbors peering out the doors. The thick carpeted piece of the hallway was abruptly rent by a long, shrill scream. Her One of her neighbors says, What's happening? What's going on? Fire! There's a fire in the incinerator room. Something's burning up there. Within the furnace's inferno, two dolls withered under the flame's intensity, yet despite... The all-consuming destruction, the crudely stitched face of one doll wore what seemed to be a smile. And we see the doll of Howie also is the face of Uncle Creepy, saying, Hmm, Enid might have seemed like a living doll to Howard, but she's hardly that now. And that's it. Then we get another ad on the back page, which is like basically the back cover for you know uh join the freaky the, the freaky the creepy fan club uh and there's a this plant actually eats insects and bits of meat it's a venus flytrap i've got a few of those actually and then on the back very back cover of the magazine genuine hand-painted movie mask direct from hollywood and uh they're selling you masks from the universal monsters and uh, it's uh it's interesting interesting artwork they've got here but they're also what's kind of cool about this is they're advertising uh paperbacks illustrated in the old comic tradition so they were you know collecting trades back then too which is pretty cool you could mail in and get them um they actually the frankenstein mask if this is actually indeed a photo of the mask looks just like the boris karloff frankenstein mask so i have to hand that to him and the creature from the black lagoon actually looks just like the movie as well um other than that it doesn't quite sell. Fan of the Opera is not bad, but still, it has the full nose and just looks weird. Anyway, that's not why I'm here. So creepy. That was Creepy 26, the first magazine uh, of horror that I ever owned that, like I said, it's the one that like, I went to my parents' house recently and had kind of forgotten that I owned um I say recently, within the last several years and like got all my stuff, all my old action figures and whatnot, and found this in there. And you know what's horrifying? What's more horrifying than any of the stories in this book? It wasn't bagged or boarded. No, it was just literally sitting in a box. And um, it's just funny because like I had bought in more recent times, getting back into horror comics, I bought uh, different creepy magazines and different like witching hour and just, just different ones. And like, um, this was the one that like, I, when I went back and got all this stuff, it was just kind of sitting here in my, um, I guess it's a studio. We always call it the bat cave. Cause it's just covered in Batman stuff. But lately it's like half Batman, half musical equipment and whatnot. Um, and uh, it was just kind of dawned on me that like, I've actually had this magazine that um, I just have kind of ignored. It's been shoved under things and I've been buying, you know, different horror comics and magazines of even creepy and completely forgot about this. And so when I rediscovered this a little while back, 
in here in the studio and uncovered it. I was like, oh my God, I completely forgot about this. I loved this when I was a kid. Um, and I wish I could remember the store that we got it from. It probably doesn't even exist anymore. Um, I would just go back and see if they still have any of this stuff. But um, it's, it's, it's a little bit nostalgic for me. Uh, and again, more surprising that my mom let me get it. So uh, anyway, I love it. And, you know, not even knowing at the time, you know, I'm being introduced to artists like Steve Ditko, writers like Archie Goodwin, uh, among the other artists. But I mean, like I, I have the uh, I know I mentioned it before, but the Creepy Presents Steve Ditko. And it's just it's a mixture of his work on Creepy and Eerie, um, which they a lot of times shared stories back and forth. So that is what it is. But like he's just such a fantastic artist in the horror realm, but you go into Marvel, you go into uh, Dr. Strange, you go into Spider-Man. Um, and he's such a, like, I, he gets like represented as like kind of a recluse. I think he's just more of like, I don't know. I, I take it as being humble and, you know, and you can read up more on it. And, um, I know he's responded to fan letters before and it probably got out of control from there, but like, um, I, who knows? Maybe it didn't. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it didn't. But like, I, I, you know, I take it more as just like these guys back then, this wasn't like nowadays where you have, you know, your favorite comic book writer or artist being put on 19 different podcasts a week. Like it wasn't like a specialty job. No, for these guys, this was just a job and they were hashing out stories. They were drawing out pages like just cranking them out because it was just a job that probably barely paid the bills. Like this wasn't like a superstar status kind of industry at the time. Like they really were like busting their asses and they weren't even really getting recognition for it. It was all about the publisher. It was about the name of the magazine. And, you know, it took a long time in comics for to, to even get the name of the artist or the writer in the credits, like you would have to really dig through the small print to get the name of the people involved, the names of the people involved. And uh, even in this, it's like, you know, at the beginning of the story, yeah, at the very bottom underneath, you get art by this, script by this, Bill Parent. And that's actually incredible. But like you still, you'll open up comics from, you know, after 1968 and you're still having a hard time finding out who was responsible for the art or the writing or whatever. Um, because again, you're coming from a time where this was just a job, you know, they were illustrators, they were writers, they were this, they were that. Um, and it's, it's such an interesting thing. And I encourage you all to, if you're here and you're not someone who has researched this, now this is a very broad sweeping statement. I realize that, but research this time in comic history. Um, it's, I mean, I'm talking about 1968. That's, that's not even, <laughs> there's so much before that uh, to research, but you know, getting into around the comics code and, uh, you know, pre and all that, uh, there's a great, great, great podcast called um, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill. And they have um, a few different, titles in that feed called like weird comics history and a few but i encourage you to go check that out uh, because they actually do a very in-depth look at it, it's multiple episodes it's so it's not just like a one episode thing where they touch on it. like they go through like five or six episodes of like digging through how the what started the comics code 
during the creation of the comics code, the comics code being enacted and then kind of like going through it. And then after it's, it's the most interesting, interesting stuff. If you are, you know, into this kind of history of comics, I urge you to go check that out. Um, I know they're on iTunes. I know they're probably on Spotify, but they're definitely on Podbean. I think it's just Chris and Reggie at Podbean dot pod. I'm going to screw up their title. Just look up Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill. It'll pop up. Uh, It's a fantastic podcast. And again, they go super in-depth. They give you crazy bios on uh, all the creators and stuff. It's actually something that inspired me to kind of do this. Now, I'm not going as in-depth because, uh, like I said before, this is something I kind of have to do while my kid is uh, napping. Otherwise, I'm working on my main podcast or, uh, you know, running errands and whatnot, do that kind of stay-at-home dad slash podcaster kind of thing. So I urge you to go check that out. Again, I love this this issue. I, I've read this issue so many times, and I'll, I'll probably read it so many more times. But one thing I'm excited to do is just to dig in more. And again, like I said, if you have suggestions for books that you want me to cover, I'll try to go find them. If you are a uh, writer or cartoonist, and you've got a horror comic, or even if it just delves into horror, it doesn't even have to be straight horror. If you're, if it, if it mingles in the horror genre, uh, you know, shoot me an email at a horror comics podcast at gmail.com or if on Twitter at horror comics pod, um, and shoot me a message and, uh, we'll talk. Cause I, you know, I'll definitely consider, uh, covering it for sure. And, you know, I don't see how I wouldn't definitely want to focus on older stuff, but I definitely want to help, uh, continue the industry of horror comics and, 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 you know, hold that up some more. So, um, that's my contact for all of you. If you want to get in touch, uh, please feel free. Um, again, I do have a DC comics podcast called DC comics Squadcast. We focus on the, uh, justice league characters mainly, but also like the main event books, the, uh, you know, the doomsday clock. We did the DC metal event, uh, the major events, but then the justice league characters and their separate books and stuff like that. Please go check that out. We're also on Twitter at DC Squadcast, And, uh, we're part of this. That whole thing is the Squadcast media. That's a whole deal in itself. If you love DC, you want to check out Squadcast media, Squadcast network, suicide Squadcast, all that, please go check it out. Um, but like I said, I want to give another shout out to Chris and Reggie's cosmic treadmill, because that's, you know, a big part of, like what inspired me to do what I'm doing right now, which is getting into old school comics. And uh, I love it. Hopefully you love it. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you have any suggestions on how I should do the show or what I should or shouldn't do, um, I may not necessarily take your advice, but I will take it into consideration and I'll, I'll take it, read it, uh, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. Without any further ado, thank you. Y'all have a good night, and I'll see you on episode two.